Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Today, we continue our coverage of the COVID-19 crisis, and we're going to look at the concept of libertarianism. What is the boundary of government power, especially in a global pandemic? Should the federal government have the right to intervene in state-level and even individual-level affairs? Well, there are issues like vaccination that everybody can generally agree upon, that the government should enforce vaccination uh, to cure the COVID-19 crisis. But should the government be allowed to close down your favorite bar or close down uh, a, a public park where uh, by going on a walk on Sunday, there is actually very, very little risk of getting infected and infecting others? So should the government be justified uh, to intervene in certain actions? Um, uh, and those are very classic libertarian debates uh, and ideas that scholars and policymakers often reflect upon. And today, we're really happy to invite Professor Keith Whittington uh, all the way over from Princeton to join us in this remote podcast interview. He is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the author of several very important works on constitutional theory, including the book, Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in the U.S. History. He has published widely on American constitutional theory and development, federalism, judicial politics, and the presidency, and is a true scholar on those issues. And he has just written a few op-eds on libertarianism during this global pandemic. So it's truly an honor for us to host him. So thank you so much for joining us all the way from Princeton, Professor Weddington. Thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is my friend Arjumani. He is a junior in Princeton, majoring in computer science, but also uh, very well informed when it comes to political and philosophical debates. And so thanks so much for joining me all the way from California. Of course, happy to be here as always. Uh, so, so why don't we get started, Professor Whittington? Uh, you recently argued in an op-ed you, you wrote t titled, uh, Can You Be a Libertarian in a Pandemic? That you know there are aspects of libertarianism that are still quite valid even during a, a pandemic. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your idea, how you define libertarianism, why you think it's so important to talk about the issue of libertarianism in, in a crisis like such? Sure. So um, I was a little struck by uh, how much public discourse there seemed to be um, coming from the political right about uh, the idea that um, uh, libertarian principles might not um, apply in the context of a pandemic um, or um, they required um, uh, uh, absolute resistance to anything the government might do. Likewise, from the political left, uh, there seem to be a set of arguments that um, uh, no one can reasonably be a libertarian in the context of a pandemic. And so this exposes uh, the inherent flaws um, of libertarianism as a uh, political philosophy uh, more generally. Seeing me, both sides of that kind of uh, complaint were uh, somewhat misguided and misconceived um, the foundations of libertarianism and also um, how it might apply in a current in the current context. And so 
uh, the piece was concerned with just trying to sketch out then sort of what are the underlying principles of a libertarian political philosophy in general, which emphasizes um, the limited role of the government um, in general, um, but also emphasize the kinds of qualification conditions that um, went along with that um, political philosophy that included an emphasis on the idea that there were some things that a government was properly set up to do um, and certain kinds of tasks and certain kinds of occasions when you would expect to see um, the government um, take action. Um, I think uh, public health crises are among those um, core um, situations where, you, where even a libertarian would expect the government to take action. Um, and moreover, it's the kind of situation in which a more um, aggressive set of government actions are in fact called for, and as a consequence, a set of restrictions um, on individual liberties uh, might be called for. And that was always implicit um, in a libertarian philosophy, um, and, and except the libertarians would emphasize that under normal circumstances, you wouldn't expect to see that kind of activist um, government and those kinds of restrictions on liberty. Um, but we should also bear in mind that this is not normal circumstance. This is an extraordinary circumstance. And there's exactly the kind of circumstance where we should expect to see uh, a more active Active uh, government and, and libertarians um, should should welcome and accept a more active government in that specific context. Uh, so, for our listeners who might not be too familiar with libertarianism, let's say we are not in a pandemic. Uh, what would you expect a, a libertarian government to act like? And let's say we are in a pandemic right now. And, and what would be the ideal version of a libertarian government look like to you? Yeah, of course, libertarians are, um, as is true of lots of political philosophies, libertarians are, uh, represent a range of different views. Um, uh, some are much more anarchic in their fundamental um, commitments, and they really uh, would prefer to have no government at all. Um, and there are some libertarians on uh, that wing um, of the libertarian movement. Others uh, instead uh, think that the scope of the state ought to just be quite limited. Um, uh, and and centrally only concerned with performing the set of minimal functions that are necessary in order to keep um, society up and running and in order to protect the rights and liberties um, of the individuals within that state. Um, at core, that means enforcing uh, criminal law and, and preserving um, some uh, minimal kinds of functions to um, um, act on what economists might call uh, externalities in various ways, but that those um, uh, kinds of actions are relatively minimal. The, the role of government is itself relatively minimal. Libertarians then are antagonistic to um, an expansive state that, for example, redistributes resources um, to uh, various members of society, et cetera. In general, libertarians then are also quite skeptical of sort of anything the government might do, including a lot of regulatory activity the government engages in. So libertarians tend to think that a lot of that um, is not really very justifiable, um, uh, strictly um, speaking. And so as a consequence, they're naturally quite skeptical um, of occasions like this, where the government, in fact, becomes uh, much more um, active and aggressive in what it's doing. Uh, I, I suppose uh, much of the criticism to big governments usually is, it comes from uh, the, the attack on, you know, ultra interventionism, you know, very unnecessary policies from uh, whether it's, you know, uh, Alan Greenspan saying that we should we can control financial market fluctuations or, you know, America saying we need to engage in the Middle East and, and such and such. But it seems that the context of pandemic is quite different is that, is that we're not coming up with some new policy that we hope to achieve, but rather that uh, it is an urgent situation that calls upon the government to step in. So so uh, you, you would just say that in that case, it, it would be a quite different scenario for the government to step in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think libertarians would say that even uh, in as a general matter, libertarians would still say that even in 
uh, emergency situations, crisis situations where uh, new challenges arise, it should normally still be the case that the government um, uh, may play a role, may play a relatively modest role. We might expect civil society to be doing a lot of the work, uh, for example, to respond to specific kinds of uh, challenges. Um, I think the specific context of a public health crisis is exactly the kind of situation uh, where libertarians ought to recognize government has a role, precisely because um, you have a threat of individuals who um, uh, might spread infectious disease um, to others is exactly the kind of externality um, that we might need collective action uh, to deal with, including a governmental response. There may still be a very important role to play for the private sector, for civil society uh, more generally, but that's uh, not to say, therefore, there's not um, a role for the government to play in that kind of context as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of what um, libertarians have been focused on, though, across the 20th century um, has tended to take place in the context in which uh, public health crises have been relatively minor. We aren't very used to dealing with um, epidemics, for example, um, and public health emergencies. And so as a consequence, these are unfamiliar situations and unfamiliar use of government power. Um, at other points in American history, it would have been much more common to have seen quarantines and other kinds of actions of that sort. Um, fortunately, we have not had to deal with that uh, very much over the last several decades. Um, but as a consequence, I think um, it sort of puts some pressure on trying to think through okay, what's the logic of our political philosophies and our expectations about government behavior, and how does that apply in this relatively unusual situation? So something you alluded to was that uh, even if uh, you acknowledge that the government has a, a large role to play in a public health crisis like this, there might still be room for libertarian ideas to actually have or to be productive in time of a public health crisis. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what kind of libertarian ideas or what kind of ideas that we can borrow from libertarianism to um, benefit us uh, in a com combating this public health crisis? Yeah, so certainly part of the libertarian orientation is to think that there are lots of things government shouldn't be doing at all. Um, and and then the one question is, is this a kind of thing where government ought to be involved and active? And so one concern of the piece is to sort of emphasize um, that uh, in responding to epidemics is precisely the kind of context where, in fact, government does have a role um, to play. But in addition, libertarians are um, uh, also very skeptical about how government develops its policies and what kinds of actions um, they engage in and how those actions wind up getting implemented. Um, and so in that context, I think a libertarian would say not only, not only does libertarian have some potential utility in and a libertarian philosophy has some potential utility in telling us whether or not government ought to do anything at all, um, but also has some utility in thinking about, for example, um, are the particular steps the government's taking, the particular policies it's adopting, um, uh, well designed to actually address um, the particular um, uh, situation at hand, or are they more sweeping? And so libertarians worry that governments tend to be captured by special interests, and as a consequence, um, uh, turn lots of uh, policies uh, toward uh, benefiting uh, well-situated um, interests rather than necessarily uh, benefiting the public good more generally. Libertarians would want to be skeptical then of particular policies are being adopted and make sure this is actually is in the genuine public interest. It actually is helping uh, to contribute um, to fighting an epidemic rather than just sort of uh, fattening some people's wallets. Um, and likewise, they'd be very skeptical of restrictions on liberty and want to ask hard questions about is this kind of restriction really necessary uh, for the goals that you're trying to um, serve? Um, I think we ought to recognize that some kinds of restrictions on liberties are going to be necessary in these kinds of situations. Um, um, but, but, but we also want to, um, uh, even recognizing that some kind of restrictions are necessary to be 
um, uh, skeptical about what kinds of restrictions we're inviting um, and really push the government to defend um, uh, why particular restrictions are necessary and how they contribute um, to ultimately dealing with um, the public health crisis at hand. You think there's a role for the private sector as well, and you think that maybe that role has been understated so far, or that there have been inefficiencies that have created that have been created by the government in this crisis that uh, the private sector could somehow fill or, or or perform better? Yeah, there's clearly a role for private sector in this context. We're still relying heavily on the private sector to um, address this conflict. Part of what we've seen is. Um, uh, private sector responses. Um, and, and we've seen that both in sort of an organized um, uh, level of the function of uh, businesses and and uh, organizations like Princeton University, for example, uh, deciding to shut down um, uh, in the face of the epidemic for public health reasons. Lots of universities made that decision long before any state government officials stepped in, said you had to. Um, universities were themselves trying to make the calculation about what was gonna be in the best interest of the students and the organization um, and, and took appropriate steps. Lots of businesses and other organizations making the same kinds of decisions. Um, in addition, there's sort of uncoordinated um, response of private individuals. So private individuals also uh, responded to uh, the rise of the epidemic by, uh, for example, not going to restaurants anymore, um, by implementing social distancing uh, norms on their own. One thing we worry about is whether or not they've done it enough, whether or not um, uh, we've reached the optimal level of that kind of thing. And so one thing that governments do on top of that is to try to deal with the fact there may be some individuals who are not uh, responding adequately. Um, and then in addition, we want to think about sort of how the private sector has responded to um, the needs at the moment. So one thing that um, President Trump has come under a lot of criticism for um, is not using uh, what were designed as wartime statutes to encourage um, and manage the production of goods that might be necessary for a war effort. Um, there's been arguments he ought to and deploy those kinds of legislative authorities um, in the current context in order to require manufacturers to produce um, uh, goods that might be useful uh, for uh, medical personnel, for example. Um, the Trump administration apparently has been somewhat reluctant to actually use um, these legal authorities. And one thing a libertarian would ask is, would it even be useful for the, for the president to necessarily use those kind of legislative authorities, or would instead it be the case that we would expect private industry to respond to the existing economic interests um, such that lots of relatively idle manufacturing plants, for example, in the present moment, um, uh, can see it in their own economic interest if we can reconfigure what we're doing in order to produce medical equipment that might actually have an immediate market, um, they would do so. Um, and one thing that you would want then is the government getting out of the way. So one thing we certainly saw early on and during this uh, crisis uh, was the CDC and the FDA often putting restrictions on how people could generate uh, medical supplies, uh, medical tests, and other things to respond um, to the epidemic. And as a consequence, slow down the private sector response. And one thing libertarians would suggest is, in fact, you got to reduce a lot of regulations, you got to get the government out of the way so that the private sector can respond adequately um, and, uh, to, to the present demands. Um, and sometimes that may require coordination and help from the government in order to make that happen, but sometimes it does require the government to sort of get out of the way. Um, and, and I think libertarians tend to lean on the get out of the way side, um, but, but they should also recognize there are occasions when it actually would be useful for the government to be involved as well. So I just want to narrow down a little bit on sort of the individual liberty part of this pan, uh, yeah. pandemic, um, the restrictions on individual liberty. Um, so, so as you've said that it's reasonable in this kind of crisis to, to put restrictions on individual liberty. At the same time, there are... Um, Countries, for example, Sweden is, is an example where they actually have not put in restrictions. They've sort of 
kept things open and they've encouraged the public um, to stay home and practice social distancing. And I know there are libertarians who argue that instead of legislating social distancing and punishing people for not socially distancing, we should just try to persuade the heck out of them to socially distance. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious where you stand on, on that issue. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are, are difficult policy questions as to what the right measures are to adopt in these circumstances and how to think about the costs and benefits of adopting the particular measures. I mean, one thing that's, that's striking about the current pandemic is it creates some unprecedented challenges um, for society and government as to how to address it. So unlike a lot of traditional um, uh, public health crises that the governments face, um, it's not so easy to identify um, uh, infected individuals, for example, and isolate them specifically in order to prevent them from infecting others. Instead, we have this situation in which um, our testing isn't very adequate to identify who's actually infected. You have these long asymptomatic uh, periods in which people are infectious, but they don't actually know that they're sick, for example. Um, and that, I think, has created um, unusual um, uh, reactions by the government to then say, OK, well, we got to shut down the entire economy and launch society as opposed to the much more traditional thing, which is let's identify the sick people um, and isolate them so they can't infect everybody else. There are hard questions involved in that, trying to think about um, uh, what are the costs and benefits of those kinds of big shutdowns. They're obviously very big costs, and the hope is that there's some real benefits um, as well. If you can get a lot of voluntary compliance with those kinds of social distancing measures, that's clearly what you would want to some degree. And I think some of what we've seen, in fact, from um, uh, orders of governors, for example, requiring shutdowns is partially simply to encourage um, uh, public compliance. It is part of what government does by issuing these kind of orders is help persuade people to take this seriously and try to act on it. And I think one of the reasonable critiques against uh, the Trump administration, for example, is they were downplaying the threat uh, for so long. They were discouraging people from taking the kinds of voluntary actions. Um, but it's the nature of our current situation, especially this kind of sweeping response that we have now, um, is that there is, in fact, no way for the government, any government, whether it's federal government or state governments or localities, um, to actually enforce the scope of these orders, right? There's not enough cops that could actually force everybody to shelter in their houses um, and not go outside. Um, and so a crucial component of making this work um, is voluntary compliance. Um, the government really needs people to take this seriously and as a consequence, um, voluntarily um, comply with these orders because if people in mass uh, stop complying with it, uh, very difficult for the government to actually do very much about that. They could do some on the margins and stuff. They can attack businesses, for example, that tried to reopen uh, much harder to do stuff about individual people. And so part of what we're seeing really is government trying to identify, one, try to encourage people to take this very seriously try to identify what the right steps are, um, and then try to incentivize people on the margins uh, about um, how to um, uh, behave. Um, and part of your concern you ought to have, I think, in that context is that you want government to be um, setting the right standards as to what makes sense. Um, and so to the extent that governments uh, are issuing orders that don't seem very reasonable, don't seem very helpful, um, um, and, and can't adequately explain why they're doing it, it may uh, lead people to downplay the risk, um, discourage them from taking voluntary action um, and the like. And so I think one kind of worry um, is that the government overreacts um, and as a consequence, people overreact in response to that overreaction um, uh, by, the, by people saying, well, this is just um, crazy. And as a consequence, this, this has all been overblown. I shouldn't take this so seriously. Um, and, um, and, and so government has to, I think, think carefully about um, what the right balance is between trying to encourage people um, to uh, take this seriously and be cautious um, without overplaying their hand um, and leading people to start then ignoring what the government's trying to recommend.
Well, if we sort of uh, you know look back on the history in the past couple of months regarding how the central federal government has reacted to the crisis, it seems that initially the government struggled to come up with the coherent communication strategies and even struggled to come up with you know uh, non fake news, you know accurate right. information for the people. And you know New York Times also published this article basically saying that it was actually very much thanks to the state level coordinations, you know whether it's you know Gavin Newsom from from California or Cuomo in, in New York. It's the state level governors that actually made some very nice decisions. Uh, but but also, I, I would say, I, I want to just touch uh, quickly ask you about this idea of voluntary compliance, because we're really placing a lot of face on those decentralized mechanisms. Because let's say, what if a situation happens where deregulatory competition happens, right? Where one state starts bidding against the other state uh, regarding you know how they can keep the economy going longer, or uh, you know we're already seeing states uh, bidding up uh, masks because because they are all trying to buy those masks. And, and uh, when it comes to you know individuals voluntarily complying, uh, I, I think that's a really tough idea because people have wrong information uh, reading about them on, on Twitter all the time. So people could really believe that they don't they shouldn't wear masks. Um, so you have all those weird ideas and, and, and things, uh, nuances stepping in. So don't you think that, you know, the libertarian ideal of, of saying, you know, everybody ha can have this decentralized reaction mechanism to this crisis is somewhat uh, utopian or, or unrealistic? Yeah, I think there's certainly risk. I mean, it's one reason why I think that in the context of a public health crisis in particular, you don't want to rely strictly on um, uh, voluntary compliance in that sense. And so um, I take an example uh, not only so so not only we might imagine that people might um, generally um, underestimate the risk and as a consequence engage in more risky behavior than they really sh uh, should. Um, we might think we may be reasonably tolerant of that or libertarian would at least say you ought to be reasonably tolerant of that. The only consequence is they're going to make themselves sick um, and they're going to have an unpleasant time of it. Um, the, the more challenging thing, I think, from a libertarian perspective is they're not just going to make themselves sick, but in fact, they may infect others. And so if you have people who are underestimating the risk and as a consequence engage in risky behavior and they may become infected, and then they go out and infect and uh, infect others, um, then others are going to suffer the consequences of that kind of behavior. Um, and from a libertarian perspective, there's no reason to accept the idea that individuals can cause harm to others um, just because they're particularly uh, willing to accept um, a risk in their own uh, particular um, life. And so a lot of the challenges for libertarians and exactly when libertarians want to recognize the government ought to step in is precisely in the context in which we imagine um, that individuals are going to be imposing harms on others through a consequence of their of their own particular um, activities. Um, and this is exa exactly one of those instances where we might imagine that um, uh, individuals are going to be imposing harms. Part of the challenge, I think, in this context, though, is we also that'd be an easier call to make if what we were confronting was a set of known infected individuals. And then the concern is, okay, well, should you quarantine those individuals or not, or allow them to go out and infect other people? Um, I suspect that there would be some who would be hostile even to quarantining obviously infected individuals, um, but, but that's a much easier call. Um, it's a trickier thing to say, well, now, we, because we don't know who the infected individuals are, uh, we're going to effectively quarantine everybody by having this kind of self-isolation um, uh, by uh, forcing people to stay in their in their homes, in which case uh, you're encroaching on the liberty of an awful lot of people and you're encroaching on the liberty of a lot of people who are in fact themselves not yet dangerous to others. 
um, and you're simply trying to anticipate the possibility that they're dangerous in order to minimize um, the risk down the road. Um, uh, that's hard for people to get their heads around. I think actually it's philosophically justifiable, um, but it is the kind of thing that just runs much up against uh, people's own instincts about how they ought to behave. And, um, um, and as a consequence, it's harder to persuade people that those kinds of things are um, acceptable in general. Something that uh, Tiger alluded to in the previous question is that the, the response has been um, somewhat state-driven, uh, even though in, in, in the U.S., uh, you know, bringing up the examples of, of California and New York. And, and it is interesting because it, it seems to be at least somewhat of a contrast to other countries where the response is, is almost unilaterally driven from the federal government. And obviously, that's, uh, uh, there are nuances, but I, I do think that it seems that in the U.S. that there is a precedent and for more state driven action and less you know completely federal government driven action um so is the, you know do you think that that's that's true that there's a precedent for that and also uh do you think that that's actually a more helpful model in a in a sort of a very large populous country like the united states than than a completely federal driven model yeah, I think some of that's contingent on our particular situation. So the Trump administration has been um, uh, uh, somewhat surprisingly in some ways um, uh, not willing to assume as much uh, control as uh, some other uh, administrations might have been. Um, they've also been, I think, a little slow to uh, respond to um, the situation uh, in ways that maybe some other um, administrations might not have been. And so so some of what we're seeing now is just a particular feature of the Trump administration, how they have chosen to react, and that's left more space for the states. But it's also true, I think it's a, it's it's intrinsic to our constitutional structure that the states are going to take the leading role here um, in these kind of contexts in general. Historically, um, constitutionally speaking, it was the states who had primary authority over public health. Um, uh, in general, they were the ones provided with the tools to address public health. That was not something that was seen within the federal government's uh, core set of responsibilities. Um, and, and traditionally, it's been the case, of course, that most public health um, crises are localized. And so um, uh, a lot of historically, the kinds of responses you get are precisely state and local responses to local public health crises. Um, part of what's unusual about our current situation is a pandemic, it's a nationwide um, a situation, at least to some degree. Uh, and as a consequence, there's more sort of natural room for the federal government to uh, want to be involved. And there are some very appropriate things for the federal government to be doing um, in, the, in the current context. Um, but I think any kind of public health crisis of, uh, about infectious diseases um, is necessarily, given our constitutional structure, going to leave lots of space for the states, and states are going to be very important um, in how you deal with it. That being said, it's also the case that it's the nature of that kind of decentralized state-driven system is states will also come to different conclusions about how to deal with it. Um, and some of that we might think is actually appropriate to variation about what states are experiencing, right? And so we might think that Kansas is just different than New York um, in the threat that it's confronting as a consequence ought to respond uh, somewhat differently. Um, but to some degree, we might think some of that's misguided, that some states are going to be slow to respond, some are gonna be faster to respond, some are gonna have better solutions, some are gonna have worse solutions. Um, and um, there are upsides and downsides of that in any context, and that's true in this context as well. And so um, uh, clearly part of the downside of this um, in the present context is that states that are slow or not very good at responding um, create risk for everyone else in that they may allow the infection to continue, may allow the infection to spread uh, in various ways, may it harder to contain um, in, in various ways. Um, 
you know, the upside of that kind of decentralized system, on the other hand, is if you think the Trump administration's being too slow or being not being adequate in its own response, the upside of that is you get states that, in fact, can adopt better responses um, than the federal government can be making. So, right. So the alternative vision in some ways is not just, well, what if the whole world was being run by Andrew Cuomo, um, if you think Andrew Cuomo happens to be doing it particularly well. Um, but instead, you imagine, well, what is the whole world from being run by the governor of Florida? Um, if you think Florida, Governor of Florida is not behaving very well, right, which many people are taking, you know, those particular stances um, uh, for others, they like to see that reversed, right? But but either way, right, whatever your preference is on that front, um, the downside of, of nationalization and centralization on that front is you get a one size fits all solution. And you may think that that solution is actually a really good one, but it may also be the opposite. Maybe it's a really bad solution. And there's no good way of working around it. Um, and so, um, there are costs and benefits to um, uh, federalism um, in most public health contexts. Um, uh, it's 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 mostly beneficial, um, uh, but in the context of a nationwide pandemic and a global pandemic, I think it does uh, put particular pressure on the way the American constitutional system is structured and where most of the authority lies um, uh, for dealing with uh, public health crises in, in the United States. So when we talk about the contrast between a decentralized system and a, and a centralized system, uh, what seems to me that is that, you know, is the response should be based on, you know, local context and, and communities and, and people's own understanding of their, their environments. Uh, but, it, but it seems to me that social safety, safety nets and uh, stimulus packages, you know, s such as those should come from a centralized government. So, um, and I mean, some would argue that, you know, the coronavirus crisis is actually exposing underlying weaknesses that only um, nationwide socialist policies could address, you know, such as universal health care. Uh, not saying that there is a direct causality between uh, universal health care and social solidarity, but it would certainly be nice if, you know, we are in a decentralized world where people can exercise their own libertarianism, but also uh, be, have social solidarity when it comes to helping each other out and having a social safety net that guarantees everybody's safety in, in those situations. So uh, how, how, what would your thoughts be on, on, on those issues? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different issues to think about in that specific context. So um, um, uh, one, we might think of uh, relative to sort of uh, things like uh, relief packages and the like. And so the kinds of actions we see in fact the federal government taking um, now, where we might think that only the federal government has the kind of resources to dedicate to the kind of uh, really large-scale relief packages that people need in order to uh, make sustainable some kind of um, stay-at-home order of the type um, that we're seeing now. Um, it's certainly the case that individual states could not themselves um, provide the kind of financial resources that would be necessary in order to persuade people they all ought to stay home rather than trying to work. Um, uh, though, and, and so you need the federal government to be able to to take those steps in the context of, of how the fiscal policy of the American uh, uh, government is structured um, in general. And the federal government has a very important role to play, um, I think, um, in, in that context. And we've encountered that off, off and on all through American history in which um, some kinds of particularly large um, financial hits um, really need a federal response uh, in order to address them. You cannot rely upon states and localities to come up with the right um, uh, response for those. And, and from very early in American history, uh, we figured that out. And, and as, as we had things like um, various kinds of national natural disasters that occurred in states and localities, and they just overwhelmed the states and localities, and you needed some federal help 
uh, in order to support that. And we very quickly decide, okay, that's an appropriate thing for the federal government to do. Um, so we have at one level sort of that kind of question, right? So kind of relief packages the federal government, Congress has been passing lately. Um, uh, should that be uh, done by the federal government or not? The other question is, is, is more specifically public health related um, and um, uh, is related to sort of universal health care, although not necessarily, right? So certainly the pandemic um, uh, uh, emphasizes some features of well, what would be in our collective, um, uh, what would be to our collective best interest um, from um, government um, supported or mandated um, health care of various sorts. Um, uh, there, it's often, I think, a feature of, of healthcare, of the healthcare context, um, that one thing we can think about is there are sometimes externalities from individuals getting sick, and libertarians ought to worry about those externalities. Um, um, and that requires, and that at least opens the door to some very specific interventions. The question is how big those interventions become and what all gets included. So the classic kind of argument is thinking about vaccination. Um, right. So do you mandate vaccination? Do you subsidize vaccination? Um, or is this just you leave it to individuals and they make their own decisions on this and the government stays out of it entirely, for example? Um, um, and as soon as people figured out vaccination, pretty quickly, government started saying, oh, well, that's actually something we ought to mandate um, uh, precisely in order to prevent people who are sick infecting other people. Right. So it's a version of the quarantine problem. Um, and and this raises the hackles of lots of libertarians because it's also an infringement on liberty to force people to have to be vaccinated who don't want to be vaccinated and they don't want to be vaccinated for all kinds of reasons, um, sometimes for religious objections, sometimes they're worried about health concerns. Um, a lot of those health concerns in the present context are radically overstated. But early in American history and vaccination were first coming online, those health concerns were very real. Um, people, in fact, got sick and died from vaccines on a regular basis. And there's a question for the society as a whole saying, are we okay with some people dying as a consequence of getting vaccines in order to save a larger set of people not dying um, as a consequence of, spread of, of preventing the spread of disease? Um, that's a tough libertarian question. It's a tough political question in general. Um, and eventually we decided, okay, it's okay to require vaccination for people, for example. Um, I think in the current context, for example, likewise, we should imagine that certainly we'd want social support for, um, that is to say, governmental subsidies for uh, testing for the current disease, for example. We don't want to leave it up to individuals to say, okay, well, you, if you choose, you don't, you don't want individuals making the calculation, I'm not going to get tested as to whether or not I'm sick because I can't afford it, I don't want to spend the money on it or something. Um, for the exact same reason that collectively we have an interest in quarantining, isolating people who are sick, we also have an, an interest in figuring out whether or not they're sick. Um, and that may require us for government support for um, uh, uh, providing uh, that particular um, uh, testing regime. Um, and that may go further and suggest moreover that actually ought to have government support for certain kinds of treatment as well, because we might also similarly see people sort of saying, well, I don't want to be uh, saddled with a bunch of healthcare costs. And so I won't bother going to the doctor to figure out whether or not I'm sick because I don't want to worry about what the bill's going to be if I, it turns out I am and I have to get treated uh, for it and the like. And we might think that actually contributes then to the spread of disease. And we want to prevent that um, by trying to have a more collective intervention to say, okay, well, let's not incentivize individuals to just uh, run around sick. Um, let's incentivize them to actually go to the doctor so they won't spread disease. So I think in the context of infectious disease in particular, it does it does suggest that there is more of a collective role there to be played and more of a governmental mandated role as well as a supporting role um, to be played in trying to address uh, some of these particular issues. 
the question being becomes, well, how big does that scope? What all does it include? And that doesn't necessarily get you universal healthcare per se, um, but it may get you some very specific interventions that you might think are particularly necessary in this kind of, uh, of context. Right. So, so there are those on the, on the left who kind of use this pandemic as, as a vehicle for saying, right, that, that this is, it shows sort of the, the need for universal health care. Um, and that kind of wraps in, into an argument that I heard recently that I'd be curious to hear a response about, which is um, that the, the, the more the comparatively libertarian ethos of, of America, especially in comparison to other countries like countries in Europe, um, actually hurts America when it comes to situations like this and the ability to respond to situations like this. So a lot of people argue, okay, well, the public health, um, uh, the public health system in America was not well equipped to deal with this kind of crisis. And that's why we see the kind of delayed response that, that we have been seeing. Um, and it's because there's a general um, mistrust of the state and, and, and of, of the government in, in dealing with health and in dealing with general matters of public welfare. Um, and so because of that, um, it's, it's, it's sort of like now as, as a libertarian, one can make an exception in the midst of the crisis but then the fact that one had a libertarian philosophy in the before the crisis uh, might have actually hurt the response to the crisis in the first place. Yeah, I guess I'm a little skeptical of thinking that the uh, unique features of the American political culture made much difference in this context. Uh, sort of an awful lot of countries seem to have gotten caught with their pants down on this front, and um, uh, and and the United States is not unique in, in, in suffering this. And and you can look across a range of countries, a lot of very different political cultures, very different political setups, different different governmental organizations, and they're all in the same mess. Um, uh, and so uh, that makes me a little skeptical. One, of thinking it's particular decisions are unique to say the Trump administration and particular politicians, um, but also a little skeptical of thinking there's something particular about American political culture or American political institutions that made us particularly vulnerable um, in this in this context. Um, certainly, I think we could have done a better job than we did, um, uh, but I don't know if it's a function of um, that we're uh, uh, particularly uh, skeptical of government that made us uh, not do a better job in this particular context. Um, I do think though that part of what's significant that's gonna come out of this moment and will have consequences down the road um, is what lessons do we learn from this and what kinds of policies do we adopt moving forward and institutions do we adopt? So one thing about the countries that happen to have responded very well in this context, countries like South Korea and, and Taiwan and Singapore, for example, um, is that they had a very serious um, public health crisis during SARS epidemic um, uh, several years ago and learned lessons from that. And as, and as a consequence, adopted a whole public health regime that was designed to deal with epidemics that then came online very quickly in the current context uh, and could successfully deal with that. Um, the United States used to have that too, <laughs> um, uh, to deal with particular kinds of epidemics. And so when the United States was routinely dealing with smallpox epidemics, cholera epidemics, um, various other kinds, of, including various livestock epidemics that were particular livestock, we created a whole set of institutions and policies and laws surrounding our ability to respond precisely to those kinds of public health crises. Um, and then gradually we dismantled them as those kinds of public health crises went away and we've solved them in various kinds of ways. Um, and so part of I think what's different about our current situation is just the United States was not prepared for this kind of epidemic. We probably should have been, we should have learned, drawn better lessons I think from the past, but we didn't. Um, and so one question going forward um, is to what degree do we actually learn lessons from this experience and then set up the kinds of institutions um, and policies um, that are gonna be necessary. I think then, 
then um, the particular features of the American political culture and political system are going to come into play and thinking about how well do we do that. Um, uh, so it would not surprise me at all. There's not a lot of resistance to, um, uh, I think, the kind of policies that actually be necessary to to respond effectively. So one thing that South Korea and, and um, Taiwan and Singapore have all done, for example, is very aggressive testing and tracing in order to um, then quarantine, uh, identify and quarantine infected individuals. This is the classic thing to do uh, with public health crises, difficult to do in this particular context, but they were set up to do it uh, in a particular way. That requires a kind of intervention that does constrain individual liberty in a way that Americans are not used to. Um, uh, Americans were more used to it at earlier points in our history when we had epidemics um, all the time, but we're not used to it now. Um, and so it will take a it will take a big political challenge actually to persuade people um, that these are acceptable moves. And I think from a libertarian perspective, the challenge as well as thinking about um, how do you empower the state to do the kind of things that it actually needs to do in this context without empowering it to do too much. Um, and it's the same kind of calculations, same kind of concerns that surrounded uh, the war on terror, for example, uh, where you think okay, well, there are genuine threats here, uh, there are genuine concerns, some kind of response is necessary. That kind of response is going to include, for example, lots of surveillance of individuals in order to try to protect them from terrorist threats. Um, the question is, when do you go too far? What's actually necessary? What are the restrictions that are going overboard and more restrictive than is actually justifiable, uh, given the nature of the threat? And it's both calculation about what's actually effective, but also a question about how serious is the threat itself, for example. And I think we're going to go through a lot of the same debates that we did after the terrorists, after 9-11, where we're sort of debating a similar issue of how do we balance out um, some, in this case, a kind of select collective security need um, and the kind of uh, interventions on individual liberty that are part of that, as well as spending money, et cetera, um, uh, versus uh, what's actually effective and what kind of risks are actually tolerable. Um, in these circumstances. I don't know how we're going to come out um, on that front, actually. Um, um, uh, I expect there will be resistance um, to doing everything that might actually be uh, reasonable to do uh, from a public health perspective. Um, and some of that's going to be a function of our particular uh, political culture, um, but some of it's other things as well. Well, precisely, you mentioned this is probably the, the first time uh, since 9-11 that America has faced this collective security problem. And, right. you know, historically, wars have led to expansion of government and, and national institutions grow during wartime and remain large once the war has ended. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we consider 9-11 as a war situation, that is, that is absolutely what happened. But, but I do think in the case of a coronavirus, what we could transition into could be a slightly brighter picture than what happened after 9-11, right? One could argue that, you know, the surveillance mechanism, the setting up of huge national intelligence agencies that were were sort of this kind of ultra-interventionism that wasn't quite healthy when it comes to individual rights. Whereas uh, if after this crisis we say, oh, we need to have social solidarity, everybody should have health insurance, and, you know, let, let, let's try to have more people wear masks during flu seasons, uh, doesn't that sound like a, a healthier, a good version of, of interventionism that, that, that you would say? Um, yeah, I mean, there are good versions of bad versions from that perspective. And I think from a libertarian perspective, the, the one of the bad versions would actually be if this led to sort of a call for universal health care, for example, which libertarians are going to be very skeptical oh, really? about. <laughs> so from their perspective, they would say, look, if, if more, more limited, the more limited, the more targeted the intervention is, the better it is and the more easily justifiable it is. And so then the question is, well, do you, if you use that as the mechanism for saying, uh, well, not only do we need to actually um, 
uh, create a regime in which we're capable of uh, testing for uh, these particular infectious diseases and maybe even treat people um, for a particular infectious diseases in order to um, uh, help limit um, the uh, spillover effects, et cetera. But in addition, we're going to give you sort of gold-plated medical care for all kinds of other things that are sort of unrelated to the infectious disease problem. Um, the only libertarian is going to say, well, look, there's a collective interest in preventing the spread of infectious diseases. There's not a collective interest um, in preventing you from smoking anymore and to deal with the health consequences associated with smoking, for example. Just take an example, right? And so from that perspective, libertarians would say, well, look, the more targeted the response is, the more justifiable it's going to be, the further away it is from the immediate need to, that's most closely associated with um, pr protecting us from this particular threat, the less justifiable it is from the libertarian perspective. And so um, I think, and I, and I think for, from, as just a pure political matter than for libertarians, I think the more they hear sort of the suggestion that, well, here's a whole panoply of policies that need to be put in place as a consequence of this, um, the more they're going to be resistant to any of them. <laughs> and so, and so um, I think the the, ch the challenge for that I see from my perspective is um, to try to persuade them, uh, the people on my right, um, that, um, look, there's a set of policies that in fact are justifiable here. Um, and you ought to support those policies, even if you're going to resist other kinds of policies. And if we get those um, uh, and, 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 and resist the tendency to expand others, uh, we all take that as a win. Um, whereas I think there's going to be some who are going to certainly respond to say, well, we should get no new policies at all. Um, and, and any kind of policy that gets adopted is going to be a loss. And, and I think that would be a serious mistake, um, um, ultimately. But, um, but yeah, can we just, yeah. Can we just go, go slightly yeah. deeper into this sure. uh, idea of, you know, healthcare, especially, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, we actually asked Professor Peter Singer this kind of same set of questions, you know. I mean, he, he advocated for closing down wet markets. Uh, yeah. And I asked him, you know, let's say in the future, should we compel people to wear masks during flu seasons? which, you know, yeah. it's kind of a similar health crisis. It's just, still people die. It's just, I mean, obviously as a lesser sort of yeah. magnitude than the coronavirus. So um, that, that sounds like something that you, would, um, you wouldn't advocate for. So, so let's just say uh, the expansion of government or right. this kind of uh, interventionist policy would be inevitable after, after this crisis. You know, people all feel like, you know, the government needs to step in to do something. What are some of the kinds of policies that, you know, you, you mentioned targeted ones that, that you think uh, should you, you would be happy to see and, and others that you would feel and dangerous and why? Yeah, so for sure, I think sort of uh, uh, mandatory, uh, mandatory uh, vaccines are going to certainly come out of this once we have a vaccine <laughs> that can address this particular issue. Um, there will undoubtedly be a debate about whether or not that vaccine ought to be mandatory. I think it clearly should. Um, and it's just viable on the same grounds. So we mandate lots of other vaccines and for the same kinds of reasons. Um, I think ultimately once we have reliable testing and um, to be done, um, there's going to be um, questions about um, uh, how widespread that testing ought to be, under what circumstances should that testing be mandatory. Um, uh, I think probably the answer is probably going to be that it ought to be pretty mandatory across pretty wide range of things, uh, uh, context. Um, uh, certainly, I think people are going to resist that. And there's going to be arguments about um, whether or not it's fully justifiable. Um, I actually do think that there's a rationale as well for um, thinking about um, uh, 
social provision of uh, treatment for some of these contexts. So if we think about the quarantine um, context that um, is more familiar from American history, for example, um, in which we routinely then identify people who have particular diseases and then um, isolated them so they wouldn't spread those diseases to others. Um, part of the expectation of that quarantine was the state would then provide health care to those people. Uh, in order to uh, treat them, in order to allow them then to return to society. Um, and so that was the expectation, even in a context in which the government, of course, did not provide health care broadly. Um, but you did provide health care to this specific context, precisely because the state had a responsibility, it was seen, uh, to provide health care, both to prevent the infection um, and to deal with the fact that you now are confining somebody um, and, you, and the state had an obligation to do what it could in order to uh, allow somebody to come out of, of the confinement. Um, and that meant in this context, treating them. Um, uh, so they, they, they then met conditions under which you could release them. Um, again, we're not familiar with that. We don't think about those, those in these contexts. We haven't quarantined people very much for quite a long time, but, but it is a sort of narrow exception to this broader understanding about how much healthcare should the government provide. This is a context in which government traditionally did provide healthcare um, to people. Of course, then it was healthcare in a very limited, sort of specific targeted way. And I think actually there's justification for thinking similarly in, in this kind of context as well, that part of how you part of how you contain infectious diseases is precisely by treating those who have them um, so they don't continue to spread the disease. Um, and, and I think even those who are very skeptical about government and social interventions ought to be supportive of that kind of very narrow intervention. The question is sort of what more comes of it. And masking is an interesting question because I do think that we wanted the issues that will sort of be on the table. I actually be surprised if there's a lot of government, if there's a lot of pressure for a government mandate for masking, for example, but I do think our social norms might shift a little bit um, on this front. Um, but one of the questions from a government regulation perspective, which is true about thinking about infectious diseases more generally and what kinds of measures you take in response to them, um, is one of the challenges has always been what counts as a dangerous disease. So lots of public health statutes that are on the books at the state and federal level both specify um, often empowering some government official, some public health officer to make reasonable regulations to address dangerous infectious diseases, but doesn't specify what counts as a dangerous infectious disease, right? And then, and then when a particular epidemic breaks out and public health officials respond to it, um, they respond to it by saying, well, this one counts as a dangerous disease, right? And without necessarily a legislature and everything signed off on that and saying this is a dangerous disease. There are difficult decisions to be made about which in any particular context, is this a disease is dangerous enough that it justifies this kind of intervention? Um, and one thing about this current sort of um, uh, set of arguments we find ourselves in about, is this like the flu? Um, I, I think one sort of background feature of that is we, we've, we've accepted the notion that the flu is not a dangerous disease in that sense, right? Lots of people do die from it, it's bad in all kinds of ways, but it's not dangerous in the sense of we don't quarantine people when they have the flu. We don't invoke all the normal um, things that go along with a public health crisis in the context of flu. And so if you categorize this as being like the flu, then you shouldn't respond to it in the same way that you respond to it as something that you would categorize like smallpox or cholera, um, which we do treat differently, right? And so then the question is, is this more like smallpox um, or is it more like the flu? Um, and if it's more like the flu, despite the fact that flu is very bad and people die from it, um, the assumption is you don't regulate it in all kinds of ways. So then the challenge is, well, okay, well, how far do the goalposts move on this kind of stuff? And so then you say, okay, well, we're gonna do require masking in flu season, for example, um, um, out of the same kind of calculation. And I, although I think masking has a relatively 
minor infringement on people's liberties, certainly compared to quarantining them, for example. Um, uh, lots of other people, I think, will react very negatively to the idea that there's going to be mandatory uh, masking. Um, and it would be interesting if whether or not we actually get to a point where we make that shift in culture. I mean, I don't know if I remember, for example, when seat, mandatory seatbelt laws came into place. Um, mandatory seatbelt laws are very interesting in the American context because because the requirement that you wear seatbelts in a car um, uh, previously didn't exist. And, and the argument is a weird one from a libertarian perspective, because basically it's only damaging yourself, right? If you go through the windshield of your car uh, in a car accident, you're the one that gets hurt, right? And so, um, <laughs> so it doesn't have this collective uh, claim of, well, look, I'm hurting other people by not wearing a seatbelt, right? The only person hurt is me. And so why should the state then tell me I can't wear a seatbelt? And the argument sort of became one of saying, well, yeah, but your kids then are without a father if you go through the <laughs> of your car, right? And so it became yeah. this sort of very awkward kind of argument because it's not a traditional public health kind of argument. Um, yet, nonetheless, the argument succeeded. We wound up adopting mandatory seatbelt laws. It was extraordinarily controversial at the time. Um, I was a teenager, so I resisted wearing seatbelts for as long as possible, um, <laughs> uh, despite, the, despite the government mandate. Um, and eventually, that became the norm, right? People got used to the idea you wear seatbelts and in part seatbelts got sort of built in automatically to how cars are manufactured. So you couldn't escape the fact uh, that seatbelts would uh, deploy when you got into a car, right? Um, and so one question is whether we sort of come out on the other side of this in sort of a similar way that we've done with mandatory seatbelts, um, right? Is do we sort of shift cultural norms where people just accept the idea that, yeah, masking actually um, is a pretty normal thing you do, um, much like wearing a seatbelt. Um, and to an older generation, that will seem crazy. Um, but to a younger generation who's used to, who comes up used to it, um, it will seem much more natural. Um, and I don't know yet whether um, 10 years from now, uh, we will think of masking the way we now tend to think of mandatory seatbelts. So we just got to keep restricting people's freedom until their kids get used to it. Uh, well, that is the way it works, right? <laughs> That's exactly what the parents are very nervous about, right? That, that there is a there is a social adjustment that gets made to restrictions on liberty. And um, uh, from a libertarian perspective, that's exactly what you worry about. <laughs> that people, will, people will accept things that you think are uh, 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 radically uh, coercive and arbitrary and tyrannous, um, and yet your kids will accept them completely, um, at least at some point. Uh, maybe not when they're teenagers. But uh, so, you know, it's... Um, um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, one thing, that, and so, you know, those who are more sympathetic to those kinds of restrictions then I think would say, sort of, well, yeah, in the long run, people get used to it. And if you get used to it, then what's the bad, what's the big deal? Um, we, ought to, we ought to accept it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's part of what we'll see now. And, and but, but as we see, sometimes these debates don't totally go away, right? I mean, I think one thing that makes sort of the seatbelt thing go away a little bit is one, it's not very intrusive. And two, it is automated, right? The fact that it is built into cars now such that you do, you, you are passively restrained, right? It doesn't require active measures on your part necessarily, it makes it much easier. Um, vaccinations though are a constant source of friction um, uh, precisely because it's not ever gonna be passive in that way, right? People have to voluntarily get themselves vaccinated um, and it requires effort. And, and as a consequence, people will always, uh, there will be some people who will always uh, resist that and complain about it um, and, and the like. And so, Masking, I think it's going to look more like that in that sense. So even if you imagine sort of requiring masking, um, uh, there are going to be people who are going to be annoyed by it and they're going to resist it to not uh, comply with it. And then the question is, well, how many and then in what kind of context? Right. So speaking of people not accepting restrictions on personal liberty, there have been a lot of protests uh, recently 
yeah. uh, protests in Texas, Michigan, other states, and, and they've called for an end to stay-at-home orders. Uh, yeah, and they've they've claimed infringement on their personal freedom. Sure. Right. Um, and I've, I've sort of uh, I've seen the the "Don't Tread on Me" uh, right. poster in, in, in some of those uh, in uh, some of those protests. Um, so, you know, you've made the argument uh, many times now, but that that you know the government has the has the uh, the ability, and we should accept that they have the ability in, in these kinds of crises to to uh, infringe on people's personal liberty. That being said, do you think that the arguments made by the protesters have merit? Um, and how would you respond to them? Um, well, I think the protests themselves seem a little crazy. So it's, um, uh, so I'm not sure the, the particulars of the protesters' arguments uh, make sense. I mean, if, if you sort of look at those kind of signs that are being waved there, there's a lot of uh, wackiness going on uh, with the protests. Um, uh, and, and we should recognize that the protest is a very small set of people, right? It's the nature of protests in general. Of course, they tend to be relatively small numbers, and then the challenge is always trying to figure out, well, how representative is this of any kind of larger constituency? All the survey research suggests that, in fact, the vast majority of Americans are totally supportive of the kinds of restrictions that are currently in place. And so the number of people currently, I think, um, antagonistic to what these policies look like is actually quite small. Now, that may change. It may change both because of the facts on the ground. It may change in part because of these kind of protests getting more attention um, to the resistance. Um, um, but right now, I think the protesters are an outlier in this regard. I think that the question is, or what are the protesters protesting about exactly? And what is the nature of the claim, right? And so there are sort of extreme versions of this. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think that's part of what's being reflected in the among these protesters in particular is sort of the extreme version of saying, well, uh, the whole thing's a hoax. So it's, no, it's no big deal. Um, uh, we shouldn't uh, restrict people all um, based on the kinds of challenges being posed by this virus. It's like the flu, right? Um, kind of thing. It's not really dangerous um, in a serious way, um, such that we ought to behave any differently in this context than we behave in the context of other kinds of diseases um, that readily uh, spread around. Um, I think that's an extreme view. I think it's the wrong view. Um, uh, I don't think most people um, are there, but, but certainly that's the view held by some. Um, I think the more narrow view and more targeted view that's also reflected in some of these protests, but also reflected in other kinds of protests, is thinking about things like, um, look, how much should governments restrict um, people's ability to go to church services um, in this context? So if you, and, and in particular, some of these sort of mega churches, for example, who have resisted um, some of the governor's orders by ha trying to have church services on Easter and other things. Um, and especially in contexts where some of those church services are trying to uh, maintain social distances as best they can. So we have these examples of, for example, people having in these uh, drive-in church services where they all come in their car to a, a drive-in movie theater, for example, and they do church service in the car. And then, and then the government goes out and sort of gives everybody tickets for um, uh, breaking the uh, government's orders on this front. Um, that's the kind of thing where I think people quite reasonably look at it and say, look, there's no actual reasonable risk of infection in this context. People are doing this very safely in this context. And the government's telling them no. Um, it's an overreach on the government's part. Um, it's, it's, it's trying to impose um, arbitrary and unreasonable restrictions rather than re restrictions actually justifiable. I think some of the debating now about sort of whether open, closed public beaches and public parks is some of that issue as well, or you sort of imagine, okay, well, look, these are contexts in which often um, you can imagine certainly contexts in which um, public parks are in fact much too crowded, et cetera, but there's also lots of contexts in which people in fact pretty spread out in outdoors places. And there's no, not a lot of evidence people are actually at much risk of infecting anybody in that context in which we might think, okay, well, the government's actually overreaching um, in that context and they ought to draw back um, from, from some of that. Um, so I think there's lots of debates along the margins of government policies that are provoking some of these um, protests and um, 
uh, some of those are actually, I think, reasonable arguments to be had, and they're justifiable arguments, um, and government ought to be capable of explaining why they're adopting particular kinds of policies. Um, the extreme versions of the protests, and that's certainly, I think, what a lot of people waving the flags at the state capitals are about, are just saying, oh, look, there's nothing here uh, to worry about. I think those are just wrong, um, uh, both as a matter of substance, about what in fact, the threat is facing us, uh, but also wrong as a matter of principle, um, trying to think about what the underlying philosophy ought to be about what kinds of freedoms we ought to have and, and how we should think about them. And that's part of why I wrote that piece in the first place, um, was a concern to say, look, from the perspective of those who are very worried about having uh, a maximum freedom in a society and uh, most limited government possible, um, what are the right principles that ought to guide us in this situation? Um, and I don't think the right principles that ought to guide us in this situation from that perspective um, uh, lead us to say, no restrictions, everybody go about their business just like normal. <laughs> you know, I think the right, even from that sort of very small government maximal freedom perspective, the right principle is to say, no, no, this actually is a time when government ought to be restricting your freedom in various ways. Um, and we ought to accept that. Um, and so um, uh, it's, it's, it's partially that piece is designed to try to appeal precisely the kind of people who are instigating at least the protests um, they're showing up in the state capitol to say, no, no, um, uh, this sort of strong version of what they're um, arguing uh, really is not justifiable, even from their own starting point. I was um, quite intrigued when, when you were addressing uh, the, the protesters, I guess, uh, a natural follow-up to that question would be about, you know, President Trump's claim about, you know, the state having total authority when it comes to over the other yeah, states, yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to reopening up the economy. And you actually, uh, your commentary appeared in this uh, Guardian article titled Trump versus the state, how the president is remaking the government right. in his image. And and you, uh, you know, mentioned, uh, so you, you helped address how Jared Kushner was, you know, making those statements like, you know, the masks are owned by the state rather than right. uh, by the government rather than the state. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, on that front. <sighs> yeah, I mean, the Trump administration is, seems very confused about what the scope of its own legal authority is in these uh, contexts, not totally unusual for the Trump administration, um, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and a little interesting to see, um, uh, which is also not uncommon, I think, for the Trump, for President Trump in particular, um, to say things that then wind up just ignored by the administration, not actually followed through on. On occasion, though, he'll say things that um, uh, you uh, do get the administration then trying to generate a legal explanation as to what the basis of what he's claiming is. Um, I think on this front, um, uh, the uh, president is on very thin constitutional legal ice um, on some of these things. And so uh, certainly the particular claim that Jared Kushner made about the nature of the uh, national stockpile and whether or not it should be uh, released to the governors uh, just doesn't make any sense at all of what the nature of the federal law is here and why this uh, stockpile of, of equipment exists. It exists precisely in order to distribute it um, to states um, in need. Um, this more recent claim um, of President Trump that he has total authority um, to uh, tell the governors uh, when they should um, uh, lift their um, lockdown orders is just completely wrong. It's not within the president's authority um, to make those claims. These are independent decisions made by governors on the basis of their own state constitutional and state legislative um, uh, authority. They do not rely upon the federal government's authority in order to make those claims, and the federal government has no authority to override them on those claims. There is some space, potentially, uh, for the federal government to um, uh, make some regulatory policy that would be uh, 
inconsistent with some of the state policies on this front and as a consequence could potentially trump uh, some of the state policies on this trump I think it probably requires new congressional statutes in order to actually get there, although there are some statutes on the book that might empower the executive branch to make some rulings um, on its on its own. Um, but fundamentally, this is primarily from a constitutional perspective, this is in fact primarily a state and local issue. Um, and, and state and local bodies have independent authority um, to make these determinations. The president has very little say so. Um, and, um, when one, the president has very little say so in order to force the states to take action. So you can imagine the opposite case in which you had a president and the presidential administration that wants states to be more aggressive. Um, president actually would not have a lot of authority to do that. Um, but it's also true in this case, the president wants the states to be less aggressive. Um, and the president doesn't have a lot of authority to do that either. Um, this is ultimately a question uh, in the American constitutional system for um, state governments to make. Um, and the president's, president, li President Trump in particular likes to position himself as um, having a vast legal authority and, and uh, can do whatever he wants. Um, but this is just one of those areas where it just doesn't. Just to pivot a little bit, there has been sure. some talk of, of relating coronavirus to, to climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sort of the analog there is that uh, climate change, like the coronavirus, is, is a worldwide global crisis. Um, and it's time sensitive, obviously not on the same time scale of the coronavirus, but, but in, 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 in maybe in the scale of decades or, or even years, some people say. Um, and a lot of people argue that in order to combat climate change in the same way that governments have combated coronavirus and, and in the same way that they've acted quickly and decisively in what we would consider the common interest, uh, they would have to do the same thing in climate change. And so if we really want to address uh, climate change substantively and, and, in, and in the way that it needs to be addressed in the next few decades, uh, we need to be comfortable with uh, more government authority and more government-driven action um, and so in many ways, the coronavirus might actually prepare us for um, that kind of future when it comes to addressing climate change. So I guess I want to get your thoughts on uh, whether you think that the government, um, that we need to become more comfortable with government uh, power and government action when it comes to climate change, um, and also whether you think that the coronavirus in, in, in some ways is a preview of that crisis in that context. Well, I think there's clearly a governmental role in the context of uh, climate change. Um, uh, in particular, the details of what that role are, I think, are are complicated and, and probably not worth getting into um, at the moment. And I certainly have no real expertise um, in thinking about the details of what that response are. But some government response is going to uh, make sense and be uh, necessary in that context. Um, I'm a little skeptical of thinking that, that this crisis um, sets the stage for thinking about that crisis. Um, um, uh, it may well be the entry point for more government activity and more interference in government in various ways. Um, there's, there is, um, including in ways that are particularly relevant, I think, for climate change. So, so where I thought your question was going to go more was thinking about um, uh, it needs a particular international response, right? And, which is also like climate change. So now there's a question about do you can it not only is it is a societal and private sector response not adequate necessarily, but in addition, you need a governmental response. But in this case, we might think in particular, uh, you need an international uh, response. And so it puts particular pressure on, us ability, on our ability to cooperate internationally um, to generate response. And I think that's true in some degree in this context as well, where um, uh, some more international activity and in, in governmental cooperation would be helpful in thinking about uh, uh, future pandemics and preventing them just like it would be helpful in the context of climate change. And we're seeing some of the 
problems of doing that in this context. And so in some ways, I think this, this uh, crisis will also highlight the very, the same things that will make it difficult to respond to climate change. Um, so for example, um, uh, we have already seen, I think, that the World Health Organization um, had a hard time dealing with China in the context of the origins of this um, pandemic. And as a consequence, lots of people were very distrustful of that particular international organization. And I think that international organization has a hard time precisely because they're partially dependent upon uh, individual nation states. Um, and um, it's, it's hard for who to do their job. Um, uh, without uh, the cooperation of China. And so they have to um, win the cooperation of China, but trying to win the cooperation of China also um, uh, limits and undermines the ability of WHO to do the kind of job they're supposed to be doing. And as a consequence, people are now very skeptical about um, the WHO um, and its role within this um, current context. I think that's going to be our story in some ways of, of any kind of effort at international cooperation, international governmental bodies, um, that um, they're going to be captured and they risk being captured by nation states um, who have their own particular self-interests. Um, they're sometimes inconsistent with uh, global collective interests. Um, and, and that's going to be a problem in this context, just like it's a problem in the context of, of climate change. It's also true what people think the correct policy response is to um, the current situation is also similar to the, I mean, it's a different debate, but it's, but it's, but it's reflected the fact that people have disagreements about what the right policy response is to climate change as well. And so one kind of response um, people are now um, having to this pandemic threat, I think is not only the kind of thing I suggested before, which is, should we invest more in thinking about tracking and tracing? Should we invest more in thinking about testing activities and those kinds of things? Um, but also people are going to say, well, should we think about global supply chains and whether or not we should all be so reliant on China? Should we impose more protectionist trade barriers in order to cut off China? Um, should should we be hostile to China and blame them specifically for um, these epidemics and as a consequence why I shut the borders in various ways. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of political pressure um, to try to isolate China in general and really blame them and say, well, they're the cause of this particular global health crisis um, and they ought to be punished as a, as a consequence. That's one kind of policy response to um, our present situation. It requires a lot of government intervention in order to get that policy response. Um, I think it's mostly not a good policy response, um, but it's it's, uh, it's a nationalistic one rather than an international one. Um, it's a withdrawal from the international community rather than an engagement with the international community. Um, and it's it's uh, one possible set of responses that can arise here. Um, and it's reflective. Of, and, and I think in thinking about the lessons of that for the um, uh, for climate, um, is, is it's a reminder of the fact that people um, can observe, even if people observe the same kinds of threats and, and agree that there's a problem, um, they can come to very different conclusions about what the best way of addressing those problems are. Um, and, and we see that in this crisis and we, we see it as well in the climate context. This is very, very pessimistic, uh, <laughs> pessimistic outlook, Professor Whittington. I, I mean, it just seems that, you know, both in the context of climate change and in this context, without global coordination, you just can't get it done. I mean, uh, I was just uh, chatting with uh, this math, Princeton math professor that Arjun and I uh, studied under freshman year, and he was saying how, you know, if uh, one country got it under control and the other country didn't get it under control and, and you have very drastically different policies, uh, the, this country could spread it again back to this first country that got it under control and caused a second outbreak, and it could be an endless cycle. Uh, and if we have another outbreak in a couple of months, uh, it could literally destroy the global economy uh, and, and livelihoods will, will be destroyed in, in a more drastic way. So in, in essence, uh, it sounds like you are more pessimistic than, than optimistic when it comes to 
I, I've been in a very pessimistic mood lately, <laughs> and, uh, and and for the past several years. And so, uh, I, yeah, I don't feel good about our politics in this regard, um, both domestically and globally, um, on this front. And I think I think it's exactly as true that this is the kind of thing where, in fact, you need a lot of international cooperation in order to contain um, the spread of this disease and uh, minimize uh, the nature of its uh, future. Um, uh, return and I think there are going to be a flare-ups that occur even after we get through this immediate moment and and the question is how do you manage those flare-ups um, down the road that will require a lot of international cooperation um, and I think international cooperation is always difficult and it'll be difficult in this context as well and and um, uh, you know it's 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 well I, mean, I think there's a lot of difficulties associated with with what the right policies are going to be here and, and it's both in terms of uh, there's going to be international cooperation is going to be necessary in order to think about um, uh, testing and travel um, issues, but also, um, and I think the much harder thing is to think about international cooperation in terms of what the right kind of regulatory regime is for um, uh, dealing with the local um, uh, environment. And so, and we see a version, of course, than that, and just in the context of the United States as well, right? So everybody freaking out about opening up the Florida beaches, for example, and everybody's worried, okay, well, now we're just going to spread it to the rest of the country again. And you know you can you can have the exact same dynamic occurring on the international stage as well, where some country decides we're going to be very we're going to open back up, we're going to be very loose, and then and then you worry that it's going to reinfect um, uh, the world more generally um, as as a consequence of that. Um, and and I think that will be intrinsically extraordinarily difficult to get countries on the same page about how to have those kind of um, uh, very difficult and comprehensive domestic um, uh, responses to. Um, uh, this pandemic, for example. Well, because in the in the Guardian article, you, you, there's this section called lip service to federalism, in which you said, you know, I'd be surprised if we're seeing um, what we're seeing now results in a substantial permanent change in the relationship between the states and the federal government. So in that sense, you, you, you doubt that any meaningful change could really come out of this this crisis on a, on a, on a political level. No, I, I mean, I, I, no, I'm more optimistic that there will be some changes, actually. I think um, I am pessimistic about the scope of those changes, and, and I'm a little pessimistic where this, whether the changes we get will be adequate um, uh, to what's at issue. I'd be surprised though, if we don't get anything, um, and including some useful things. Um, I, I also wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot of not very useful things in response to this as well, um, which I think is probably at least as equally likely um, uh, to emerge um, out of this process uh, by the time we're said and done. Um, but I'm hopeful actually we'll get some useful things in terms of vaccination regimes. I have, I'm hopeful we'll get something in place in terms of um, uh, some kinds of testing regimes. Um, I'm a little more skeptical whether the scope of the testing and tracking that actually would be fully necessary to fully contain uh, this kind of virus. I'm skeptical we'll get that kind of thing in place. Um, um, but but we'll probably get something and, and we'll probably get some things that are useful. But, um, uh, but you don't think there's going to be like a long term change in like the political consciousness or, or something like that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I, 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 think I, I think I want to say I hope not because I'm worried that if, if we get a long-term change in full consciousness, this is likely to be very bad from my perspective. Good, right? um, uh, and, and we're seeing that, right? I mean, we're, and so, you know, from my perspective, both on the political left and the political right, we're seeing um, kinds of responses and calls for dramatic changes in policy um, that I 
that I would find very unattractive in both on in both camps and and not well justified by the current situation. And um, so I I think it's at least as likely that we get a set of of um, bad policies coming out of this as a set of good policies. And my, my hope is just that we get some good policies <laughs> in addition to all the bad ones. Um, and um, um, and maybe we minimize how many of the bad ones we get. Um, so, so before we, we end the interview, I would love to just, I mean, we, we don't have time to go into all the uh, wonderful work you've done uh, and all the research uh, you've committed yourself to, but I would love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on why you've recently become a pessimist, because very rarely we have a guest on our show publicly admitting that he or she is a pessimist. We, we always have people who come here and say, oh, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. You know, I'm, a, I'm an inherently optimistic person. I'm long-term optimistic and, and things like that. But, and I'm not actually, I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, the Professor Toby Ord, who is the, the uh, Oxford philosopher mm -hmm. uh, in the effective altruism ah, right. movement, who basically you know, said there's a one in six chance that humanity goes to extinction in the next 100 years based on a series of probability calculations. And, and he, he's certainly not very optimistic in that sense, way, way more pessimistic. Right. So would love to hear your thoughts. On well, I'm not that pessimistic. I don't think, I don't think we're <laughs> likely to uh, go into extinction. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I'm not necessarily very optimistic that we actually get our political act together and and uh, uh, start making good collective decisions um, as, as a consequence. Um, uh, you know, I, I, there is a uh, uh, intrinsically optimistic quality to some aspects of being an academic, I think. And so that was certainly reflected in how I thought about uh, campus free speech issues as writing about a few years ago, for example. Um, that um, I went into that process sort of pessimistic about where I thought we were, that I thought there were lots of threats to um, uh, free speech uh, and critical inquiry on college campuses, but I was somewhat optimistic about the fact that through education and talking it through, we can actually come to a better set of uh, agreements on what the principles are and a better set of policies and, and practices that implement those uh, kinds of principles. Um, and it's, it's a nature of an educator that you sort of hope that you can persuade people and people will uh, learn and come to better solutions from your uh, perspective. Um, this is not one of those cases though. This is not like a, uh, this is not gonna be a function of um, persuading people on a university campus to a better set of principles and practices. Um, uh, this is a question of coming up with a set of policies that will intrude on people's uh, deep interest and will, um, uh, overlap with a set of existing uh, political interests and structures that um, incentivize people not to come to those conclusions. And so, uh, so not only are they intrinsically hard, I think they are actually intrinsically hard public policy problems. And so I think that that itself is difficult, makes it difficult, right? That we'll come up with the right answers uh, because it's hard to come up with the right answers. Um, but it's also true, I think that it's just, um, it's, it's, it's requires the kind of political acts um, that will be very tough to do. And, and, um, um, and one reason why I've been relatively pessimistic about politics in recent years is just the kinds of political forces that seem dominant right now, uh, from my perspective, are um, uh, uh, 
not very attractive political forces and 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 also not very efficacious political forces in some ways. And so um, uh, so in lots of ways, uh, politics seems like it's going on the wrong track. And this is just one further example of it. So um, and so uh, I, I think it'd be possible to do some good things here. Um, I'm just not very optimistic about our ability to do those things. They're very good. I really want to thank you at the end for for you know giving us this kind of different perspectives on, on how we should reason through those 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 issues. Absolutely, um, my pleasure. So, so since the name of our show is is uh, policy punchline, I just want to ask you at the very end, what's the punchline here? What's what's your punchline for our audience? Uh, the punchline is the state has a role in the context of a public health crisis, and you should expect the state to uh, intervene in um, society and restrict liberties in various ways. Um, at the same time, you should always ask very tough questions of the state to uh, make sure that the kinds of interventions they're adopting are actually justifiable and necessary in the circumstances. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us all the way from Princeton, Professor Whittington. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks. My pleasure. That, that, that was a, that was a wonderful conversation for for me, uh, and also thanks so much for helping out with uh, with the co-hosting uh, the show, Arjun. Of course, and thank you so much, Professor Whittington. Yeah. Really enjoyed the conversation. No, I loved it. it. Didn't feel like all this time went by. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, so, are you still appearing on media these days? Where can our listeners learn more about your work or, or read some of the your, your more of your thoughts on COVID nineteen and, and Yeah, so I um, I'm still doing some stuff. Um, uh, I I write regularly on the Volant Conspiracy, which is a, a collective blog hosted by uh, Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian oriented um, uh, magazine and and website. Then the Volant Conspiracy, in particular, talks about uh, legal and constitutional issues. Um, often from a, a libertarian perspective. So um, a lot of what I've been uh, writing um, for public audiences is there, but on occasion, write in various other places as well. Perfect. Uh, I would certainly encourage our listeners to uh, go seek those thoughts out. And, and, and thank you again for bringing your wisdom to us today. Thank you so much for waiting. Thank you. Awesome. And, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, whatever platform you may find us on. Uh, thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.